I really thought the way that you get rid of bigotry and racism in this world is by shouting it down, by having a better argument against it, by, um, you know, uh, being more clever, by out outsmarting people. And I just don't think that's true anymore. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Dylan Maron is an actor, writer and social activist. Through punchy social media videos, he's drawn attention to discrimination and challenges in American society. In the process, he's also drawn plenty of negative feedback. From this, Dylan created Conversations with People Who Hate Me, a show in which he gets in touch with people who've said some pretty awful things about him and then has a real conversation with them. The conversations are raw, touching and often surprising and I believe can teach us a lot about how to live in an increasingly polarised world. Dylan, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So your, uh, your upbringing, let's start, start there. Were you always interested in uh, writing, acting, social, social justice, or, or did, that, did, did that steadily evolve later in life? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been interested in working on... on um, all of that, all of that for a while. I mean, I had been interested in acting as a kid. Um, and I think inherently being, um, a queer person, being a queer person of color, um, you, you are more keenly aware of the systems, uh, that run the world and the systems that you are marginalized within. So I think just inherently through my identities, I was able to, um, kind of understand more about the social world, um, specifically my place in it and other people's place in it. Um, and, and I think that's where kind of activism sparked, but, but I think because I so throughout my life wanted to do public work, I think the two now go hand in hand. Which part of the States did you grow up in? So I was actually born in Venezuela, um, in Caracas, and then when I was five, I moved to New York City. And did you do you think of yourself as, as having a, a, a happy childhood? Oh yeah, I I, I definitely think. Um, I mean, I was very lucky. I have incredible parents. Um, just you know. They're, they're good people who who took a lot of care to, to make sure that I had a really good life. They worked really hard for that. And, um, yeah, I, I grew up in New York. So I, you know, I, n- I never want to kind of co-opt the term struggle. I, I don't I don't know that my upbringing or, or life was a struggle, um, but I do think there were unique challenges I faced because of my identity. Um and 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 as with all of us, that that shaped how I see the world. So let's go to some of your uh, social justice projects, which uh, 
uh, as my Generation Y friends like to say, uh, got the virus. Uh, you, uh, you did a, uh, a, a, an extraordinary project called Every Single Word. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that project is and uh, yeah. what it showed? Yeah, so um, so Every Single Word is a project I made where I edited down popular movies to only the words spoken by people of color. And it was really a way to talk empirically about what was um, the, the issue of representation in film. Um, and I was experiencing the racism in in Hollywood and the film industry, um, specifically our film industry, just through sheer, sheer virtue of um, kind of the, the walls I was hitting when I tried to enter this industry. Um, a lot of agents that I met with would say things like, you're too specific, um, I don't know what box you fit in, and I, I learned later that these were all euphemisms to say, like, people like you don't get to have nuance, right? Um, and so I wanted to kind of talk about representation in film, um, the, the lack of people of color in nuanced roles on screen in a, in an empirical way, um, where, where it's kind of inarguable, you know, um, the, the facts are laid out there in front of you. And this was a way to bring more people to the table, um, rather than necessarily making like a, a vlog where I just like talk about this issue or, or a really well-written essay where I, where I, where, you know, I, I dissect the issue in prose. This was a way to make it shareable, make it content and, and um, put it in a form that people could understand and see right right in front of them. I remember uh, being struck uh, by two. Uh, one was Jaws, where uh, you yes. have the opening credits immediately followed by the closing credits. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. Harry Potter, where you do, you do all of the Harry Potter movies. Uh, your Harry Potter video is six minutes long, but... There's no major characters there. It's all the, yeah. the minor characters. Uh, oh, completely. Yeah. Uh, you also uh, you you did a, a, a an unboxing project, uh, mm -hmm. riffing off these uh, these videos of people uh, unboxing uh, gifts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unboxed uh, concepts like Islamophobia and the mistreatment of Native Americans. Yeah. Uh, but one which seemed to to really spark a lot of uh, outrage, and I guess led on to conversations with people who hate me. Uh, was your Happy Heterosexual Pride Day video. Yes. Uh, what prompted that one? <laughs> so, um, well, you know, um, just after the... I, I don't know what it was that exactly started this trending, but there were a bunch of people saying, you know, if there's a gay Pride Day, there should be a heterosexual Pride Day. And I decided to kind of make a satirical video poking fun at that, a PSA wishing a happy heterosexual Pride Day to all my straight friends out there as an ally to the straight community. Um, clearly <laughs> all satire, right? But um, some people were very annoyed by it, um, so annoyed that they decided, let me <laughs> tell him exactly why and how annoyed I am. Um, and, 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 you know, throughout all the digital things I was creating from, from Heterosexual Pride Day to every single word to, you know, to all the videos, I, to the unboxing videos especially, um, I was getting so many negative comments that I kind of wanted to find something to do with these comments. You know, um, is there something that I can create from this, you know? So you then reach out to some of these people who've said, 
extraordinarily nasty and hateful things uh, about you. Uh, and uh, what, what, what made you think that that would work as a podcast? Um, I, I, I felt like there wasn't much room to have a nuanced conversation online. Um, I think the structure of online makes it, of the internet makes it so that um, we're often like jockeying for likes and for engagement in the way we speak to each other in comment sections. We're looking for upvotes in some platforms. We're aware of the possibility of downvotes. And so there's um, a performative element to conversations. And, and also in a comment section, you really don't get to have nuance. Um, uh, if you slip up and say the wrong thing, you can, you can be attacked for that. And there's really also not a lot of listening. Um, there's a lot of seeing what someone's points are and then finding ways to tear down their points. Does this exist in voice-to-voice -voice conversation? Absolutely. It's just that there's a great deal more vulnerability when you're talking to someone voice-to-voice. Um, and so, yeah, so, so it was, it was through that and, and through kind of wanting to take these online conversations and move them offline that I wanted to start conversations with people who hate me. One of the things I was struck by, and I've listened to a lot of the conversations was, uh, how quickly my own views switched from being, uh, hostile to the person who had said these awful things about you to feeling sympathetic. Uh, mm -hmm. You had one conversation with a uh, police officer where very quickly it emerged that he had had uh, an awful childhood in which his, his mother had shot his father when, mm -hmm. uh, when, when he was very young and gone yeah. to jail and had been raised by his gr grandparents. Uh, do, you, do you feel yourself very much coming coming around to, to their point of view what is it that that makes you see those people as as humans well i think one it's that the whole point of this project is to like um be you know um extend empathy to people who um started off on a on a negative foot with me um so the, I think it's really easy to feel empathy for someone when they are disarmed, unarmed, and I mean that metaphorically clearly. Ideally, they're not physically armed, <laughs> too. Um, and on, <laughs> on, on the phone, um, people are often disarmed, um, right? There's, there's less of that negative performativity and more of just someone being themselves. Um, and it's also like, you know, the magic question to ask someone is like, why did you say that? Right. Then suddenly it's not, it doesn't start as a debate. Um, it, it starts as someone answering a question of why they wrote a certain thing. And then the super magic question is when you ask them to, you know, to talk about themselves. And, and I'm not saying that we're all narcissists. I'm just saying that um, people feel, when people feel listened to, that's when I think they're more primed to listen to others. Um, so, so it was very easy to start feeling empathy for these people because suddenly they're not just a digital avatar. They're not a profile picture. They are 
um, they're a voice, they're a voice that has experienced things, they're a human, and, um, and, you know, like I always said, like, the goal is not to, like, um, push people to agree with each other, um, and it's also not to be like, well, convince me of your side, right? I, I am, am, am pretty secure in what I believe. I'm, I'm always looking to learn. But um, just because I listen to someone who has very different views than me doesn't mean that just because I've heard them and given them empathy and given them space to say it and, and, and acknowledge their humanity that suddenly I have undone decades of learning that I've gone through just as... I would be foolish to think that a single phone call with me is going to undo decades of learning that they've gone through. Um, but I, I do think we are so um, terrified of speaking to each other um, that I wanted to put something out in the world where we where we do that. But that's quite a different philosophy from your social justice project in some sense. I mean, every single word, mm -hmm. you really are looking to change people's views. Uh, did it take you a while to get your head into the idea that you would have a sp uh, conversation where you weren't trying to, to change that person's views? Well, it's funny. I actually see, I, I see all of my work actually coming from the same place, which is I don't know that I wanted to change anyone's views with every single word. Clearly, that's the goal. Um, I, I mean, clearly, that would be a wonderful thing that came out of it. But with every single word, I kind of wanted to present a problem. And specifically, I wanted to create, uh, I wanted to present a creative way of addressing a problem. And I think conversations with people who hate me is itself, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back here, but I think conversations with people who hate me is a way of subverting the problem, right? Um, rather than blocking people, as I did, um, I wanted to let them in. And rather than, you know, screenshotting their posts and making fun of spelling errors as a way to give myself a leg up, which I did and never felt that great, um, I wanted to actually talk to them. So to me, ultimately, uh, every single word is, is similar to conversations with people who hate me um, in that what I'm actually hoping to change people's minds about is the possibility of conversation. Um, I, I think, and I, I'm speaking for myself and the people I know here um, or wh who exist in my circle and exist in whatever social media algorithm I've been placed in by the powers that be, um, I feel like we are really so scared to speak to people who disagree with us. Um, and we think that whenever we do speak to people who disagree with us, it has to be debate. But I really don't believe in debate. And I want to be clear, I'm only speaking for myself. Maybe some of your listeners are suddenly very upset that I'm saying things like I don't believe in debate. <laughs> but um, I... Debate to me is gamified conversation, and debate can't actually exist in a post-truth world. And what I mean by post-truth world is something that I actually experienced when making an unboxing video. I, I, I did something um, about a year ago where I unboxed gun violence, and I said, you know what, for the first time, 
I'm going to list all of my sources because all of my unboxing videos were, were pretty heavily researched, but I never listed my sources. So what I did for this one is I listed the claim that I made in the unboxing video and then the source where I got it from. So everyone could know like this is heavily researched and this is backed up. And I was so sure that was like an end, end the discussion. Boom, we're done. You know, like we got it. But, the, but what started happening as people who disagreed with me were posting links to their own sources that they viewed as valuable, reputable sources and that negated my sources and my facts. So what I'm saying is we live in a time right now where if you feel that, um, if you believe that something is true, and I'm speaking from about myself here too, you can go online and prove that true with sources that seem reputable. Um, so debate to me is, is this, um, it, it, debate more feels like a competition when I think there are so many conversations that are so much more difficult than, um, and require so much more than a competitive conversation, right? They require like actual listening and actual consideration and actual, you know, facts about the, the, the facts that they rely on are the facts of the, the truth of the people in the conversation, um, rather than, you know, this notion of facts, you know, backed by research because, because there are such contradictory facts out there that are each backed by research. How has doing conversations with people who hate me changed your views? Uh, are you uh, keener to uh, to visit the South? Do you tend to follow more conservatives on uh, social social media? Uh, has it broadened your set of friends? How does it change how you live your life? Um, well, it's changed me a lot, and it, but it hasn't changed at all what I believe. You know, I I I don't suddenly believe that being gay is a sin, <laughs> you know? Um, there's, uh, I also, something I talk about with, with guests a lot is, is they have a lot of ideas about Black Lives Matter. Um, I believe Black Lives Matter is, is a very necessary and crucial movement that I stand by as an ally. Um, talking to someone who believes that Black Lives Matter is a hate group or, um, you know, in softer, in to put it more softly, unproductive. Um, if I'm listening to that person, that doesn't mean I'm suddenly agreeing with them. That just means like suddenly that that means that I am considering what they're saying. And by considering, I don't mean weighing the options of if I'm going to jump over to that camp, but just truly understanding why someone would disagree with me. And the structure of social media does not totally allow for me to really listen to someone else's side because I feel like I'm immediately on the defensive when I'm on social media. If I see someone who who feels a certain way, I can easily write them off as someone who I wouldn't agree with and I'm not going to follow them. Um, but it has... I don't know. It, it, it has changed me in the way I kind of want to approach these things it's also made me fully aware that like you know there was a time where I really used to think like if I wrote and and produced and recorded 
a, a really like cutting video essay where I destroyed the notion of racism, like that would contribute to the eradication of racism. And I understand that that's not how it works, you know, like, um, you, it, it, change is not fast. Change is really slow and it takes conversations. Um, so I wanted to kind of project and put out into the world what those conversations could sound like. What's your view on, uh, uh, the, uh, the culture at U U.S. universities? Uh, I mean, I've spent four years at American University 14 years ago, um, so I'm uh, wildly out of touch, but I'm struck by writings from prog American progressives I respect, like Nicholas Kristof, who've argued that in certain campus contexts there is a, a tendency to see conservative as being a synonym for bigot. Do you think there is a risk that uh, some university uh, campuses in the, in the US are becoming insufficiently open to a range of ideological perspectives? Um, well, I guess all I can offer in terms of... Um, in terms of my opinion on the state of universities in the U.S. is that... I, I will say that I think there is a huge amount of focus given to very few instances. Are there times when um, conservatives are chased off campus? For sure. Have we seen a lot of those times recorded and made into a story? Yes. I don't want to minimize this. Um, and I also, you know... What I want to say is, as you know, as many people have, have made very clear, we have the First Amendment here in the U.S. where people, um, you know, very loudly um, say that, you know, the First Amendment says that everyone should be able to, to speak their piece. And I totally believe that. Um, so, so I am of the mindset that I, I do think it's important to kind of let people speak. Some people hold very hateful ideologies. Um, some people peddle those ideologies um, to, uh, to incite something that I think is very dangerous. Is it productive to have them speak on, on their campus? Uh, if I were running the programming of a campus, I wouldn't necessarily invite that person. Would I invite someone who has conservative beliefs? For sure. Um, I think it's important to listen to other people. Um, I don't know, I, I guess the reason I'm kind of speaking in circles when I answer this question is that I'm not a university student, and I, I fully support, um, you know, the freedom of speech. I, I just think that what I also support is um, the demand for people who exercise their freedom of speech to then sit back and listen after they've mm -hmm. spoken. Do you know what I mean? Um, so... Yeah, so so because like the freedom of speech is something that's invoked so often here when people say something hateful and they're like, well, if you don't like it, we'll deal with it. It's my First Amendment right. And it's like, that's all great, fine and good. But um, if you're not listening, I have much less respect. I have much less um, admiration for your ability to exercise your First Amendment right. 
So I need to let you go in a moment, but let me just ask you a couple of uh, final yeah, questions. Of course, Nuniak, ask away. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> oh my God, that's a great question. I would, jeez, um, um, it's you have a long road ahead of you. I'd say, um, I'd say take your time. Um, my teenage self wanted to be acting in movies and plays. So I would, I would have prepared that teenage self that things have changed, but, um, you've kind of built paths when paths didn't open up for you. Um, and I would, God, I don't know. I don't even have a stock answer for that question because I, I really, I really don't know. I've just been so like, um, I guess forward focused that I haven't even thought about my teenage self recently. Um, I like the yeah. notion of a long road ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A long road ahead. Um, and, and, and again, I, I really don't want to co-opt the language of struggle. I don't mean, I don't mean that I endured things that no other human has ever experienced. I just mean, um, uh, yeah, go easy on yourself. Um, I, I think I wanted to like be successful the moment I left college, you know, um, and, and it just takes time. What's something you used to believe, but no longer do? Um, I think like I mentioned before, I really thought the way that you get rid of bigotry and racism in this world is by shouting it down, by having a better argument against it, by, um, you know, uh, being more clever, by out outsmarting people. And I just don't think that's true anymore. Um, I think it takes a long, 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 long time to undo centuries of systems of power that... Um, you know, perpetuated problematic and, and, and harmful ideas that marginalized people. And I, you know, suddenly now I feel so much more open to, to listening to people. Um, again, not, not a jumping on, on, on their boat to agree with them, but just listening. Yes. When are you most happy? <laughs> when am I most happy? Wow, this is great. Um, when I'm with my husband, um, you, and then I guess on a professional level, it's like, I guess when I feel like I'm making a difference, you know, um, I mean, that's something I question about this podcast a lot too, which is like, you know, is we we've developed an, a nice healthy audience for it, but like, um, I, I after every quest every episode, I wonder like, you know, what is this doing? Is this helping the world? Is this not helping the world? And you know, when I hear from the people who who really resonated with the episode, whatever episode it may be, then I'm like, oh, I guess like I'm in, injecting something useful into this world. Um, so. I guess that's that's my answer. It's when I feel like I'm doing anything useful at all. Yes. And finally, Dylan, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Mm, wow. 
that is oh wow um mom, mom, mom. um well so i went to a quaker school when i was a kid um and the idea of quaker meeting is a really beautiful one it's it's um, it can be very multi-faith in the sense that many different religions have partaken in Quaker meeting. Um, and it can mean it's so, um, the structure is so simple that you are welcome to, um, to, to bring to it whatever you want. But the idea is you sit in silence in your community for usually an hour and people speak when they're motivated to speak. Some people get to see it as um, um, you speak when God moves you to speak, and there's a much more secular understanding of it, which is just that you speak when you yourself are moved to speak. Um, but I think that was such like a beautiful practice because everyone could speak if they wanted to. But it was also that moment of like being present in a room in silence with sometimes hundreds of people, which is just something that never, ever happens. Um, it's a form of meditation. It's a form of community building. Um, and, and for some, it's a form of worship, but, but that, that was huge for me. Um, yeah, that was huge. What a fascinating and unexpected, uh, way to end the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You didn't see that coming. I didn't at all. No, uh, Dylan, um, thank you very much for uh, sharing your uh, your wisdom, your ideas and uh, and your thoughts about com conversing uh, across the political aisle in, uh, in my language uh, on the Good of Life course. podcast. Today. I mean, yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. This is a this is a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback. So please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.